I love the forget the past there. It's really a word for me during this season of uh, recognizing that I can't bring my old self into the new thing that God is trying to do. If God is doing a new thing, then I must enter as a new person into the season that God is calling me to do. Because to bring the old person is to assume that that old person is going to be able to function in the new place that God is calling us. And a lot of times we're trying to move into a new season, acting like the same person that we were before, we, without the recognition that if God is doing something new in our lives and ascending us to a new place, that perhaps it behooves us to allow God to complete the work and to allow us to enter as a new person. New wineskins, old wine, doesn't work. Actually, the scripture says that new wine and new wineskins. And so this passage of Isaiah brings to mind this whole idea of just forgetting the past, of moving past the past, of a new season. It gives me this sense of something new. It's already happening. Do you perceive it? So my prayer for us this morning, my prayer for you this morning, is that you would be aware that God is doing what I call a new, new thing. And that you would come to recognize that you are a part of this new, new thing that God is doing. So it's less about determining what is the new thing and more about becoming aware that God is positioning us for this new, new thing. So I'll explain myself. I've never had a new car, like a 2019 new car. However, if the Lord is directing any of you as I speak this words to buy me one, no problems at all, I will welcome that. I've had used cars that were new to me. I've had a new used car. This car has been used and owned by someone else, but I've never owned it. So it becomes a new car for me, even though it's really a used car. However, if you walk into a dealership and you put down a deposit or you pay with cash, you walk out with this new car that's not had a previous owner before. You are the very first owner of that new car. It's new. It smells new. It has that scent of a new car. But that's not exactly what I want to speak about today. When I say a new, new thing, what I am referencing is not the new used car that would be new for me or the new car that you pulled away from the dealership with. It's a new, new thing, as in something that's totally new, as in something that has not come into its full fruition yet as in something that's in the making. It is a new, but a new thing for me and for you. It is something that I can perceive, but I, I don't quite have the clariness, the clarity, or the fullness of what it looks like. 
It's, it's, it's a new thing, and, and, and it's, uh, it's something that, that, that I get this feeling and this sense that it's happening, but I can't describe it. And so that Isaiah passage brings me to that place of this new impossible thing of making wastelands in the wilderness. So if you see the wilderness and you can understand that God is at work and you have this perception and this sense in your emotion and in your body and in your mind and, and as you're thinking that God is up to something new, has anyone ever felt that? Just this little tickle in your stomach or, or this little sense in you. God, what are, what are you up to? I can't place my finger on it. But I know that I see the wilderness. And you make a path in the wilderness. And that there's dryness to bring water through that dryness. I can't quite understand it, but I sense and perceive that you are there. My good friend, J.D. Watt from Seedbed and New Room, he always says, don't be afraid to camp out with certain Bible verses, with certain portions of scripture for a long time. Don't, don't be afraid to settle down there. And that's how I feel. I've been in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11 for over a year now. And every time I think I'm done with these passages, God reveals something new to me. And here I am today. It's Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 11. Filled with examples of something new as in something not existing before. And in the passages before chapter 10, there's all kind of new things happening. You'll remember the ascension of Jesus Christ in chapter one. And in that ascension, the Holy Spirit descending. And sometimes I ask myself, do we even understand what that means? I feel like we've got it when we're talking about the relationship with God as Father. And, and we have real clarity about the relationship, God, the Son. We understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. But when it comes to this relationship with God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the triune God, there seems to be this na -na 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 -na, and this distance between our understanding of what this Holy Spirit Spirit was intended to do in our lives, is intended to do in our lives, and it is what Acts is all about. How do you cultivate your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do you cultivate a relationship with the Spirit of God that gives us guidance and wisdom and discernment? More than often, it's not even a thought that we have been able to embrace, but Acts begins in chapter two with this new, new thing that takes place and there's an outpour of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two that leaves everyone in awe and wondering what has happened, including Peter himself. And then there's the conversion of Paul. Who saw that coming? No way. Really, Paul? The persecutor of the church? 
Nobody saw that coming. It was a new, new thing. It took them by surprise. And yes, you may say, of course, there's conversion. You got to expect that to happen. But Paul, like Saul of Tarsus? No. And if you doubt me, ask Barnabas who had to go and intercede on his behalf and be the ally and the advocate to tell the rest of the disciples because they were not falling for it. They refused. New, new things that are going on. And then you see this movement and this God positioning and moving people from one place to another alongside unexpected people. There's Philip the evangelist who ends up because of the diaspora in Samaria and begins to spread the good news naturally. Philip was not sent to Samaria with an agenda as a missionary. He was just going there because persecution broke out and that's where he ended up. And when he is there, he is just sharing out of the goodness of who Philip is and is sharing as an evangelist the good news and something amazing happens there. And then he's taken up and placed before the Ethiopian eunuch. And all this crazy movement that is happening is fascinating for me, fam. So when I begin reading Acts chapter 10, I see it as, as the story about uh, a, a first version about something new, new that is about to happen. So Acts 10 and Acts 11, there's two versions of the story. And, and as you know, it's not uncommon to have two sides of one story. But both of these are coming from the same person, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, which I find very intriguing. Chapter 10, I like to call the Gentile version of the story because it begins with the Gentile. Chapter 11, I call the Jewish version of the story because it begins with the apostles and the believers in Judea. Both of them, chapter 10 and chapter 11, revolve around these visions. Visions. Not visions as in the vision that you would put within a business plan, but visions as in this revelation and, and this hint of something that God is doing new that might end up in the business plan. But it's beginning with this something new that God is doing and, and this sharing and God confiding upon us something that has not come fully to fruition. It's been over 15 years, maybe even 20. I remember uh, being in PA, in Pennsylvania, living in Pennsylvania. And uh, it was a real time of transition for me. And I remember I have this piggy bank, which I still have today, of Sesame Street. And God said, I want you to open up that piggy bank. I said, huh? And I opened up the piggy bank and I started to lay out all these coins. I loved collecting coins as a child. And I began to lay out all these coins in front of me. I knew God was nudging at my heart, so there was no question. I tend to be the person that says, I'd rather err on the side of obedience. If I feel the spirit is calling me to do something, I would rather err on the side of obedience 
So call me too spiritual. I'm okay with that. I would rather be too spiritual than to miss what God is trying to do in my life. And so it seemed real weird for me to lay out all these coins, but that's what I did. I laid them all out and I felt God begin to speak into my, into my heart about the nations and about all people knowing and experiencing God. And I felt like I was getting a call at that moment to the nations. And I remember weeping over those coins and, and just feeling an overwhelming sense of the presence of God in that room. Fast forward various years, nothing happened. I mean, I was involved in missions. I did a lot of traveling. I felt like I was being faithful to the call of God. But this establishing of these nations, there was a disconnect between my experience of the coins and what I had heard God speak to my life. And so I kind of tucked it away, said, whatever. Maybe I didn't hear right. Maybe that wasn't going to happen. A few years ago, God began to create this welling in my heart for this global vision that's yet to come to fruition. But God used that to connect to what he had given me years ago and to remind me I have placed it in you and I will bring it to pass. Now it makes no sense. I don't fully get it. I don't even know where it's going to come into fruition, but I have a vision, a global vision. And God is reminding me that even though I may have tried to set it aside, he brings it to my forefront, reminding me that what God has called me to do will happen. Look at me, I don't know where, I don't know when, I don't know with who, but I am choosing to believe God that he will bring that to fruition. And I can do that. Because I found myself in a place coming back from Cuba, emergency surgery, laying down on the sofa, and some of you have heard this story, where I'm laying down on the sofa, and I've gotten bad news from the doctor saying that I will never have children. And in my vision, this man walks in with this little girl who is sitting there. I was not even dating someone. I was not even married to anyone. It wasn't even part of the agenda. But God gave me a vision. And I opted to believe the report that God had given me over the report that the doctors had given me. And praise be to God, I have a 13-year-old who is a miracle child, a gift from God. I can believe God for the vision. If you lack the faith, call me. I will believe on your behalf. I can believe God to bring things to come to fruition. So when I think about the vision that God is about to give these two men, something within me reconnects to the realization that God is still doing a new, new thing. And so this is Cornelius. The first one in Acts 10 is listed as Cornelius' vision. You're going to be my Cornelius people. Cornelius is from an Italian group of the Roman army. He's from Caesarea. And that's where the Gentiles live. It's 3 p.m. when he gets this vision. 
And in Acts 10.30, it says that he's fasting. An angel appears to Cornelius and calls out his name. Cornelius! Cornelius! The scripture says that Cornelius stares at the angel. The angel responds, and he asks the angel, what do you want? What do you want, Lord? And the angel responds and says, God has heard your prayer, and he sees how you give to the poor. I don't know what Cornelius was praying, but Cornelius was praying, and God gives him a vision as a result of that prayer. And the angel says, send men to Joppa. This is where the Jews live. And find Simon, that's a Jewish name, Simon Peter, and tell him to come. So Cornelius does exactly what the vision tells him to do. And he sends two servants and a soldier, and he commissions them to go. And then it's Peter's vision. The Jewish version, what I call the Jewish version. Now Peter, he lives in Joppa. That's where the Jews live. The Gentiles are in Caesarea. Peter is in Joppa, where the Jews hang out. It's not 3 p.m., but it is midday. And this is the day after Cornelius had his vision. Cornelius was fasting. Scripture says that Peter was hungry. He was hungry and he was waiting for the food because it was not ready. And so he ends up in the roof of the house praying. And he goes to pray and while he's praying, he also has a vision. For Peter, he sees this big white sheet coming down. And in Acts 11, it says that Peter stares into the big sheet. Cornelius stares at the angel. Peter stares too. A voice comes out of that blanket. It says, Peter. The angel responds and says, Cornelius. Peter, get up, Peter. Kill and eat. What do you think Peter says? Oh, no. No. Mm -mm. Para nada. No hay ninguna forma. There is absolutely no way I'm going to get up and eat. Nothing impure has ever entered my mouth. Why would I even think of that? Three times, because Peter loves the number three. Three times. The voice says, Peter, come on. Yeah. Come on, boy, you can do this. Peter. Peter, don't call unclean what I have purified. Uh, what's up with you, dude? What? What? What, what are you saying? This is, this is not impure. This is, this is not unclean. Don't you dare call unclean what I have made pure. And the blanket disappears. And I'm sure, fam, that Peter is left wondering, what just happened here? Two visions 
similarities in these two visions, happening in two distinct geographical areas, two different people that do not know each other, two people with a vision that they don't have any real clarity about the vision that they have received. In case you didn't get it, there is a tension between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this relationship between them has been strained for many years. The Jews, these guys over here, they see themselves as superior. They're better than these guys over here. They have this sense that the Jews are from the, the descendants of Jacob. They're, they're the Israelites. They're the real thing. And after the exile, these folks stayed back because they were poor. They could not go in the process of the exile. They were the ones that stayed back. And so they intermarried. And when they intermarried, then in the eyes of the Jews, they became less. They weren't as good. Or these people represent those others that were not part of the descendants. And there was this tension back and forth of the superiors against the less superiors. Of those who felt that they worshiped the true God versus those who felt, no, we worship the true God. It was political, it was cultural, it was religious, and the tug of war was back and forth. So much to the degree that if you saw a map, you would come to see in this map that down here, oh, we see a map. Voila! You didn't think I had that power. You see where Judea is, and you see where Caesarea is. Samaria and that portion was considered the northern kingdom, and the lower portion was considered the southern kingdom. You'll recall the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. What happens is that if, if the Jews had to go to Galilee for anything, they would cross over the Jordan River, which you'll see pointed out there, and go around Samaria, even though it was the long route. They would much rather go the long route to reach their destination in Galilee because they refused to be in the presence of the Gentiles. Because they refused to be with the lower class. They feared they would be contaminated. They feared that there would be some kind of violation. And so they would prefer to go all the way around. So for the angel to ask Cornelius to send representation to Joppa was a big risk. You'll see Caesarea, Caesarea, Caesarea is in Espanol. Caesarea on the top portion and then Joppa. About 40 miles is what they say. Cornelius sends his peeps to go over and guess what happens? Peter receives them. The fact that Cornelius sent them, who were obviously different all the way through, and that Cornelius receives them is against what the norm has been in the interaction between these two groups who do not care for each other. And in that is where the passage has been read. 
It says, Acts 10, 24, that following the day he arrived into Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them. And those them are Peter, six followers who traveled from Joppa, and three of Cornelius' men, 10 people in total together. Jews, Gentiles, traveling together. Now, 10 people is a noticeable thing all on its own. Jews and Gentiles traveling together. Now, that's weird. Given the Jew-Gentile relations, now that's weird. But both of them had heard and seen and experienced a vision from God. And so they responded. And Cornelius responds as soon as he sees Peter's, and the scripture says that he falls down to his knees. Now he's not falling down to his knees because it's, oh, the mighty Jew is before me. I better bow before him. Uh -uh, that did not happen. He's falling down to his knees because the vision is coming to fruition. It's happening. And in the awesomeness of that moment, Cornelius' response is just to fall to his knees. Now, Peter could have taken advantage of that moment and have said, please, stay there. Give me the honor and the glory that I deserve as a Jew. Peter says, no, 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 get up. I too am a man. As they're talking, in verse 27, it says that Peter goes inside. Peter goes inside the house. Peter doesn't stay outside. He goes inside the house of the Gentile. This is another no, no. This does not happen. But Peter goes inside and he finds a large gathering and Cornelius has invited everybody and their mother to come to this party. He's like, this is for my family, for my friends. At the same time, Jordan, that the vision of Cornelius coming to fruition, the vision that Peter received is also coming to fruition. These are people that he considers impure. He doesn't hang out with the impure. And both visions begin to come to fruition at the same time. When Peter sees all the people that are there, I'm sure his head began to spin. And in verse 28, he says it. He says it out loud. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. There, he said it. Everybody knows that this should not be happening. And here we are. This is not a question, it is a statement. This is where Luke makes it known, this tension that I've been talking about. This is where it begins to happen. Peter makes it known that this interaction goes against the customs and the traditions and breaks every rule. And then in verse 28, he says, but God, 
Look to your neighbor and say, but God. Now say it in Spanish, pero Dios. Now tell all your friends you speak Spanish. Pero Dios. Pero Dios. Peter says, showed me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. And therefore, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. I want to pause here and ask you. Sometimes things don't make sense. And you know they're from God. How do you respond? Is God calling you to do something that makes absolutely no kind of sense, man? It's job security, I can't do that. It would mean crossing over to the other side of town and I don't feel safe. It means assuming a posture that I've never gotten up in the platform. that God has entrusted upon you? Has God revealed to you a new, new thing? Algo nuevo? So it's real interesting to me because uh, I'm sure Peter was thanking God that he brought six men with him who were uh, witnesses of what was happening because uh, when the news was going to spread out about what just took place here. Peter was in some hot water, but he had some witnesses with him and he wasn't the only one that experienced this. And he asked the question to Cornelius, why did you send for me? Peter didn't even know why he was there. Why did you send for me? I think it's real interesting that Peter goes into Cornelius' house and risks all this with no idea of why Cornelius has asked him to come except for the fact that he had a vision. That is a lot of weight to put on a vision. In Acts 10, verse 34, the vision is revealed. And Cornelius tells him, man, I had a vision. And he tells Peter the vision, and I sent for you immediately, and I'm so glad that you came, and here we are in the presence of God to listen to everything that the Lord has commanded you to tell us. This is the break here, where Peter can go straight into his spiel. I mean, he's been doing this stuff. He knows exactly what he needs to say. But Peter doesn't go straight into his spiel. Peter begins to speak and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. While this whole story is often known as the conversion of Cornelius, which does take place, we lose sight of the fact that the transformation of Peter the shift in his way of thinking, the opportunity for him to contemplate about that new, new thing has just taken place. This is Peter's aha moment. It just so happens that just because you're the Jews and you are the Gentiles does not mean that you have to 
split in different sides of the congregation. It just so happens that this is Peter's moment to come to the realization that just because there were some cultural limitations, it did not mean that the Jews had to remain on one side and the Gentiles on the other. Peter gets the revelation that his religious understanding on what was supposed to happen in keeping these two groups together was not what God had intended for it to be. And he receives a new, new thing, an invitation to be a part of the coming together of a unification that then would bring forth the outpour of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter does it. He goes through his sermon, John baptizes the water, Jesus receives the Holy Spirit and power, and he tells them about the healing and the delivering of the captives. He talks about the crucifixion and the resurrection, and then he talks about the ascension, and he tells them that the witnesses uh, were Peter and all the disciples, and he's trying to convince them and tell them this is really true. We saw it ourselves. And he tells them, and then after that, we were commissioned, and now we go around preaching about this truth and about the forgiveness of sin for all who believe in Jesus. And then at that point, something happens. Peter is not done with his sermon or with his speech, but at that point, the Holy Spirit interrupts Peter. The Holy Spirit puts a halt on Peter's, uh, um, Peter's what? Su confesión, how do you say that? On Peter's, uh, come on. Huh? Thank you, sir. On Peter's testimony, there is a spin, there is a twist that takes place. Now the testimony has been completely uh, changed. And now I forgot what I was doing. Thank you very much, Absin, and my two languages. <laughs> so if I speak in Spanish, if I'm preaching in Spanish, I think in English. If I'm preaching in English, I think in Spanish. You can lay hands on me. <laughs> but I'll settle for you just being gracious with me. <laughs> Peter goes down through his whole sermon and what he would typically say next gets interrupted by the Holy Spirit. And in this section it says that the Holy Spirit descended and interrupted and moves on the people without Peter. Peter created the atmosphere. Cornelius created the atmosphere. The atmosphere of unification is in place and the Holy Spirit descends and everyone that is with them is amazed. And you'll recall in Acts chapter two, the amazement of the disciples themselves Jesus has ascended. The Spirit has descended. And everybody's speaking in all these kind of different languages and they begin to understand each other. And they're like, what is going on? And some people say they're drunk. And Peter gets up and says, no. This is what the prophet Joel talked about. This, this is the new, new thing. There was no way of convincing Peter that this would happen again. And then convince Peter that it would happen amongst the Gentiles. 
So once again, Peter is completely taken back by this new, new thing that God has done in his presence. I used to think that in this passage, when Peter says, no way, Jose, I'm not going to eat anything that is impure and unclean. I used to say Peter was on the rooftop praying and it went right over his head. He missed it. Now I believe that yes, he ran the risk of missing it and of it going completely over his head because he did not understand the new thing that God was doing. But now I believe that God in his graciousness and his mercy and in his love, not just for Peter, but for Cornelius and the people that he represented, the response of what was happening had nothing to do with Peter's request. Peter was on the rooftop praying because he was hungry. And perhaps we could spiritualize that to come to say that he was hungry for more than just food. But it is the prayer of Cornelius that ushers in this great move of God. And Peter is a beneficiary. Do not miss that. It is. It is the benefit of the response of God hearing the prayer of the Gentile, that then the Jew is invited. Peter, in the three times that he has asked, he is invited to something new, new, to something greater. And in that greatness, there is the outpour of the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God, that comes upon them on that second Pentecost on that second experience where God takes completely control and the Holy Spirit descends and they experience transformation. So I love our pastor. I do. But I was quite ticked off at him. It's a good thing he's not here, I think. It was the One Another series, the Love One Another series. Week three, the call to serve each other. They did the whole foot washing here. I knew I was in trouble when they started with the foot washing thing. But he begins to talk. And he, and he says something, you know, along the lines of this serving one another and placing the other person above ourselves. I'm like, what? And then I say something, I was sitting back there and I say something like, he doesn't know what I'm going through. And he stands up here and he says, I know some of you are thinking, oh, well, Pastor Steve doesn't know what I'm going through. And I said, even say it out loud. And then I really knew God had my attention at that point. God was speaking a word to my heart. I was saying, God, I can serve somebody who 
who's been cool with me, right? Who I can relate to. But there's somebody who's, who's messed me up. serve someone that I may not see in the same way? I mean, I know this. I'm a preacher. I travel. I preach this. But sometimes what we know is totally different than what God is calling us to do. And what we believe, we think that we believe is not necessarily who we are or what we do. And I knew God was trying to tell me that. And so I, like Peter, was like, uh-uh, no way, Jose. Mm, maybe some other day. Posiblemente en otro momento, pero no hoy. No hoy. No. Our small group got together. And we were discussing this. And I remember having an intense conversation with, amongst each other. And I was telling the smog, man, I feel like God's calling us to do something new because I don't know how to do that. But I do feel like God is calling us to rise up beyond what we know and what we have understood to be the right thing to do. I, I, I feel like there's this sense of God calling me to a new thing, a new, new thing. And, and I told him, I want to be honest, I, I don't want to miss it. I don't know how to do it, but I, I don't want to miss it. And, and I came to the realization that in order for me to come to this place where I can just trust you with all my emotions, where I can just trust you with who I am, my Puerto Ricanness, my Hispanicity, my being a woman, I know it's not always the norm. And that it's suspicious and easy to question even what kind of God I serve. I hate, I hate to even bring that up, but it's so much a part of our reality where on a constant basis, I find myself trying to prove that I'm just a child of God given this beautiful gift and this culture that is not intended to separate me from you, but it's intended to bring about a unification where the Holy Spirit can reveal God's self in a way that we have never experienced before. For you cannot do it alone, Gentiles. You cannot experience the fullness on your own, Jews. It's in the coming together that we begin to experience the every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It is a new, new thing, and I want it. I want it. Mark the Michael told me. He's in our small group and Mark the Michael told me, he said that means that this new thing, it means that everybody has to live at this level in order for this to function. And so I can trust you with me because you've placed me above you and you're gonna take care of me and you're gonna love me and I don't have to worry because you've got my back. And you don't have to worry because I have yours. Oh, God.
God, would you reveal to us, would you anoint us with such a power, with such an ability to see beyond, to see the new, new thing that you are doing. Oh God, may we see crooked paths be straightened. May we be able to go to the waters, the living waters, even if they find themselves in a different place that we're not accustomed to going. It was Cornelius, his prayer. And you and I have received the gospel of Jesus Christ is all result of it. I don't know what's the new thing that God's revealing to you. I don't need to know. In reality, you don't need to know. But if God is, but if God's given us this College Wesleyan, a new vision, don't let that series, don't let that just be a series that we move past on. I want to be a part of that church. Don't you? Will you? Let's do it.